As I prepared to preach Psalm 133 to you this morning, the Lord reminded me um, in powerful ways just how much of a blessing it is to be able to be a part of um, gathered out brothers and sisters. Can I get a witness to that? Amen. And as much as, as it is a privilege to gather out just to be together, um, it's it's even greater privilege to stand before you and to be able to preach His Word. And so thank you for that opportunity. And uh, thank you to, for Pat, to Pastor Matt for sharing the pulpit with other expositors that God's Word might be rightly divided and that we might grow together. Today was um, Move Up Sunday. Our children's Sunday school started back for the summertime, and some of you have maybe not known that, but it was Move Up Sunday. I, I, there was a, my, my beginning story here uh, reminded me of that, so if you've got little ones that um, maybe, I, it always is kind of nervy, you know, we got, even, like, even though, uh, like Alex, my youngest, she moved into preschool with Lissa today, and she's like nervous about going, I'm like, it's Lissa, come on, you know, so just pray for kids, we're going to pray for them at the end of the service during our pastoral prayer, uh, just pray for children and for students and, and all the, the transitions that are happening right now, and then I invite you, of course, to get your kids to be a part of our Sunday school program, it starts at 9.15 on Sunday mornings throughout the summer. In the spirit of that, a faithful Sunday school teacher was speaking to his upper elementary class about the things money can't buy. And he said, well, it can't buy laughter and it can't buy love, he told them. And to drive his point home, he said, what would you do if I offered you $1,000 not to love your mother and father? And stunned silence ensued. And then finally, a small voice piped up and said, that's not a deal I would take, mister, but how much would you give me not to love my big brother? How sweet it is when brothers dwell in unity. Psalm 133. Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. If you would, let's go to the Lord in prayer now. This prayer I'm about to pray is from the Scottish Psalter of 1595. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, who art not the God of confusion or discord, but the God of concord and of peace, join our hearts and affections in such sort together that we may walk in thy house as brethren, in brotherly charity and love, and as members of the body of Christ. Let the oil of sanctification That is, thy Holy Spirit inflame us, and the dew of thy blessing continually fall upon us, that we may obtain life eternal through the same Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So I want to begin this morning. It's just three short verses. 
packed with meaning. It's poetry, so it, it is going to unfold like any poem does at first glance. It may not seem like much, but then as you meditate on it and think about it, it just it grows and expands. And so uh, I want to dissect verse 1 with you and define some of the terms and do some exegesis of, of some of the Hebrew terms that are going on there. And then because uh, verses 2 and 3 give us some really powerful metaphors that are absolutely stacked with meaning, so we need to establish what exactly it is that David is referring to when he talks about the, the oil on the beard of Aaron and the, and the dew on Mount Hermon before we go there. And then those, those illustrations will really drive home what he meant by brothers dwelling in unity. Okay, so the first word I want to draw your attention to is the very first word of the psalm, Behold. Okay, in the King James, it's low. And it very simply means this. Look around you. Behold. Look around you. This gives us an indication of the context of the song. Notice in the subtitle, it's, one, it's another one of the song of ascents. And as in, in previous expositions from Psalms recently, we've been in the Psalms of ascents. So these are liturgies that would have been uh, sang by God's people as they gathered together in the holy city for festivals, like Passover, holy days as they came together. This would have been a part of their liturgy as they came in from the hills and the hollers of Israel, so to speak. Um, and they gathered as they gathered in a large crowd. The first word draws attention as exhibit A for the point that the psalmist is about to make. He just says, "Just behold each other. Look, lo." See, look around. I mean, I guess, I guess as by way of illustration, you don't, you don't get to do, many of you don't get to stand here. Some of you, you know, overcome the nerves and all that and come up here and, and take part in leading worship services, but you don't get to see what we get to see. You, you are beautiful people. You're beautiful when you are together. Behold, it's a majestic thing to see. Amanda's grandmother, her name is Grandma Betty, she just turned 90. She had six kids, and they all had a bunch of kids, and their kids all had a bunch of kids. So what you get is having to rent out a church gym just to get us all into one room at family gatherings. So when she, we recently uh, went over and celebrated her 90th birthday party with her, and she took a moment and stood up uh, to gaze out at all of us. They, you know, it's customary that she's kind of the matriarch, so she stood up and was going to say a few words of encouragement to everybody, to her teeming hordes of of children and grandchildren, so to speak. And she gazed out at us and she just said, would you look at this beautiful mess that I've made? And then she said, what a sight to behold. Behold, to look at. God's people gathered out is a sight to be seen. It is beautiful. It's powerful. It's intimidating. And as we are to learn in this psalm, it's extremely important. So behold, how good and pleasant. Behold, how good and pleasant. Good meaning morally right. The word used by the psalmist, good meaning morally right. Good in the wisest sense or according to a standard, according to the standard, which the psalmist would have understood as God's law, according to God's law. So good according to God's law, and pleasant or delightful. Obedience to God's law most definitely does not always allow room for immediate gratification. 
That's actually what makes God's law really hard. And it's actually what exposes us. It's why the law is our teacher, as we learn from, uh, from Galatians. It exposes us because it doesn't allow us the instantaneous gratification that all of us in our flesh desire. It's kind of the nature of the law. But in this sense, it is both morally right, lawful, and also at the same time satisfying in an instantaneous way. Most of God's law is still satisfying. It will satisfy. We're promised that. But oftentimes it's a long-term satisfaction. But in this instance, it's immediate. It's both lawful and immediately gratifying for brothers to dwell in unity. Okay, so let's go to brothers. So behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers, so let's talk about brothers. Why does the psalmist point directly at brothers? Why doesn't he just say people? I and you most likely don't find ourselves in a lot of uncordial conflict with East Coast Catholics or African Methodists or Salt Lake City Mormons. Maybe the occasional Facebook spat here or there, or if we're intentional about making efforts to travel outside of our tribe, but even then, nothing, no conflict with these people, with people that are vastly different than us, is lasting. I have, on the other hand, had hours upon hours upon hours and of conflict and navigating tensions with Posey County Baptists. Why? Why is that the case? Because we're brothers. Because we look alike. We talk alike. Our genetic makeup and material is similar. We value the same things. The world thinks that conflict arises mostly from diversity because two parties are different and desire different things. But that's not usually, that doesn't actually play out if you think about it. It's wrong. Conflict most readily arises when two people want the same things and they can't both have it at the same time. If we all thought and looked exactly the same, it's not a recipe for less conflict. It's actually a recipe for more conflict. Anyone who has ever raised two boys in the same household can tell you what brothers do. What do they do? They fight. They fight. Is it because they have different values and want different things? Is that why they fight? No, it's because they want the same thing and they both value the same things. There's only one mother's affection. There's only one father's proudest gaze. There's only one biscuit left on the table and they reach for it at the same time and mixed martial arts ensues, right? Consider, consider the word of God. Isaac and Ishmael. Jacob and Esau. And understand this morning, when, I'm talk, when I say the word brothers, it is gender inclusive, okay? I'm talking about brothers and sisters, so ladies, don't get upset with me, right? That's the word, is brothers, though. Rachel and Leah. Rachel and Leah. The sons of Jacob, all of them. Moses and Aaron. 
the royal sons of David's line, generation after generation after generation, deciding who would rule as king, and sometimes it got bloody deciding who was going to rule as king. And the list from Scripture alone goes on and on. For the very first murder in all of human history was what? Cain slaying Abel. It was fratricide. Because they both wanted to please the Lord with their offerings, and Abel's pleased God more. So Cain filled with envy and acted out in rage and murdered his brother. So behold, look, look, gaze upon God's people. Gaze upon how morally right and instantly gratifying it is when those who desire the same things, brothers, dwell in unity. And that phrase could literally be translated, are physically together in their togetherness. But that's pretty clumsy. So the ESV said dwell in unity, right? So you could, if you took the concept, right, of the Hebrew phrasing that is there, and we find it in other places, and we'll talk about that in a second, the phrase dwell in unity could be physically together, like we are, in their togetherness. We're in the same room with a common, agreed-upon purpose. Think about when God's people are ascending to Jerusalem, and the worship leader looks out and he says, look at each other. Isn't this beautiful? Isn't it beautiful? Isn't it good and pleasant? Isn't it lawful and, and just enjoyable when brothers are together physically in their togetherness? The word for unity here is also used to denote raising voices together. Like when the people shouted together, unified, at Jericho in Joshua chapter 6. Same phrasing. Same phrasing that's here in Psalm 133. Or when they wept together, unified, in Nehemiah chapter 8, when Ezra was reading the law to them. And they, they, in one, as they were together in their togetherness of sorrow, they had missed out on understanding the law of God and obeying the law of God. They wept together in their togetherness, in unity. Or, like I said, when they were being called to sing together here, Psalm 133. I believe that it would be appropriate to say that in large part, culturally speaking, we don't understand unity like it's talking about in Psalm 133. The the word unity gives me, maybe not you, but me, it gives me images of cheesy marketing slogans for the most part. We're all in this together. Together we can. Can't we all just get along? Well, the answer to that question is no. Resoundedly, no. The answer is no. We can't just all get along. Unity has always been a terrible rallying cry for unity. It doesn't work like that. At best, the kind of surface level, just keeping your mouth shut for the sake of non-offense gets us what I like to call the forced family photo unity. You know, you know how this goes. Everyone's snipping and bickering and arguing and rolling their eyes, and then someone with a camera says, smile, and everybody looks in the same direction and goes, dot, 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 dot. <laughs> click, dot, 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 and they're right back to it again. 
Kids are too smart for these kinds of charades, obviously, and that's why they don't often cooperate with the fantasy that's trying to be created by the adults around them, that there's unity going on. That's 100% not the kind of unity that Psalm 133 is talking about. It's not it at all. What it's talking about is real, bedrock, firm foundation, solid rock level togetherness. Togetherness. Together in what's on bottom of everything else. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 5 says, I therefore, it's Paul writing to the Ephesians He's talking about unity, the kind of unity that Psalm 133 is getting at. Is it up there? Therefore, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. How is that possible? So you've got, that's, that's even like upper level stuff. He wants us to act a certain way, because of something that's underneath of it. Let me help. We're going to read that. I promise we'll get there. Walking with humility and gentleness and patience and bearing one another in love and eager to maintain unity for the bond of peace, that is not an easy thing to do. Not at all. Because we are, we, although we are all Posey County Baptists, we go about things just a slightly little bit differently. And we think we might know better than somebody else on something else. How, how does one work on, have the freedom to work on what's up here? By first, by first rooting relationships in what's down here that doesn't move that doesn't change, that must be unified bedrock. And what is that? Verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you have been called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. How you choose to live out, how you choose to carry out verses 1 through 3 to the glory of God is completely between you and the Lord. He has gifted you specifically and differently and given you a unique role to play in building up his kingdom. But if there's going to be real, lasting, moral goodness and pleasantness between brothers, physical and spiritual brothers, there must be this between them. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one word by which they have been instructed and are obedient. Because then and only then are we free to assume the best of each other. If we were serving the same Lord and have paid homage to the same standards of goodness and righteousness gleaned from Scripture above all else, above all else, preferences, experiences, thoughts that maybe the you the utterings from the Holy Spirit. You know, you have all these things that are up here. They cannot be on the same level of Scripture. Scripture must determine 
That by what standard? The standard must be God's word because of his lordship. And if we're both playing within the same boundaries that the word has laid well, then go and be well, my brother. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The ways you serve and exercise your giftings may be very different from me, but if it's within the bounds and the standards that God has laid down, go and be well, my brother. Build a kingdom. Build God's kingdom. Now, this isn't some sort of, of a polemic against doctrinal distinctives. I think those are important. We read, we, we read our distinctives as a church together, we, oftentimes in our worship services, and we've, we ha, are, have said, okay, we've got this firm foundation of one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one word by which we're ruled, right? Okay, we, 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 and we, some of that is established through our doctrinal distinctives. And then we can even as a church say, okay, let's start laying some bricks that we also agree upon as we've interpreted God's word. And that's important as well. That's important as well. So when they come together, when brothers dwell in unity, the unity that comes from all of them confessing Jesus Christ as Lord. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one standard for righteousness. It is good and pleasant. And it's good and pleasant, pleasant like two things. Verse 2, Psalm 133. When that kind of unity is had, this is what it's like. It's what the psalmist says. It's like the oil on the head running down the beard, the beard of Aaron. And it's like the dew of Mount Hermon. And you say to yourself, what on earth does that mean? What does that mean? Let's just take them one at a time. So the first one, anointing oil on the head of the first high priest, Aaron. Exodus chapter 30 is where we're going to go to understand what's being said here. Exodus chapter 30, verses 30 through 32. Now, Moses is up on Mount Sinai the first time. God's laying down the law for him, literally. Laying it down, giving him the standards by which God's people are going to live. He's up, the people are at the foot of the mountain, they're waiting on Moses to come down. Kind of just nervous with anticipation, right? God's laying it down from Moses, telling him how you're going to do things, okay? And so this is, where, this is what God tells Moses, how he's supposed to set aside, who he's supposed to set aside, and how he's going to set him aside for a special ministry of high priesthood. It says this, You shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. And you shall say to the people of Israel, This shall be my holy anointing oil throughout your generations. It shall not be poured on the body of an ordinary person. And you shall make no other like it in composition. It is holy and it shall be holy to you. So God is instructing Moses this way atop Mount Sinai. He's giving him 
the law. He tells him to set aside his brother and his brother's son for a special ministry to the Lord. It's the ministry of teaching the people of God the law and holding them accountable to the Lord. It's priestly ministry. Now, Aaron was not a worthy man to receive such a blessing, was he? He's not even strong enough to resist the immoral will of the people For as God is speaking these very words to Moses, what is Aaron down the mountain doing? He's collecting gold from the Israelites to construct a calf, an idol in the shape of an Egyptian god so that they can worship it. So here's the point of this. The goodness and the pleasantness has nothing to do with the brothers and has everything to do with the means of grace that God has given called unity and togetherness that God has ordained for those brothers. That's really important. Catch that. The goodness and pleasant has nothing to do with the brothers. He doesn't say how good and pleasant are brothers. He says how good and pleasant is it when brothers dwell in unity. That's the thing being talked about. Brothers dwelling together in biblical unity, not based on their own goodness and pleasantness, but rather that of their God is the very means that God uses to bring about the ministry of Aaron, which is this, glory to himself and teaching and guiding of his people and the expansion of his coming kingdom on earth. That's what Aaron's priestly ministry was about, glorying to God, teaching and instructing, guiding God's people and expansion of his coming kingdom on earth. So when you show up to church and you raise your voice in unity, when you are together in your togetherness with brothers, when you break bread in the name of Jesus with your brothers, when you preach the word on the streets with your brothers, when you act a fool and proclaim Christ to kids at VBS with your brothers, when you teach the word and hold accountable your brothers, you are anointing them for the ministry of their priesthood as set aside in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, which says this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Your unity, not facey family photo unity, but your unity in one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one sovereign word reigning over us. Your word, your unity with your brother in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is anointing him for the ministry of the priesthood in your life and the lives of all those you call brothers and sisters. Not because he is worthy of such a calling, And not because you are worthy of such a calling, but because our God, who is worthy, has made a way for us to serve him and called us to it and, praise God, hasn't left us alone. He has sent a helper, which is the Holy Spirit, to help the whole unity project along. And this is at the core of why I so strongly, strongly believe in church membership. We're by no means perfect at it or experts in it, 
but I know it's in the hearts of our elders. This is at the core of why we so emphasize it, why we celebrate it so strongly and guard it so seriously. Finally, the psalmist leaves us with this image that when brothers dwell in unity, when they are together in their togetherness, it's like the dew atop Mount Hermon. The dew of Mount Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing life forevermore. Mount Hermon is located in the north of the promised land. It's a snow-capped mountain, meaning it's a wet mountain. It's not dry. And all those tiny little beads of precipitation collect and do what water does, which is flow downhill, right? And it waters the valleys below. One commentator went so far as to say that Mount Hermon and the others mountain, other mountains like it trap moisture in such a way that causes Israel to be the land flowing with milk and honey while the rest of the Middle East is an arid desert. Right? You have, it's the same phenomenon that takes place with like the Rocky Mountains in the United States. You have an ocean. You have a little bit of land. Okay? You have mountain range. You have moisture coming off the ocean. You have mountain ranges that, that keeps the moisture either atop the mountains or on that side. And then on the other side of the mountain, what is it? Desert. And God's people are living in the fertile land. It's the land flowing with milk and honey. Because of the dew that collects on top of these mountains, or the moisture that collects and flows down into the valleys and creates a fertile area where things can be grown. Christ came to turn back sin and all its effects. Sin destroys, sin makes deserts. Not like literally, but it, it makes spiritual deserts. It makes economic deserts. Sin has a cruel tax on creation. But Christ restores and gives life both now and ultimately forever. To list just a few Christian achievements... Science and discovery, the pursuit of truth. This is a Christian concept. Dignity of human life led to things like health care and the profession we know as doctors, nurses. That's ours. That's Christendom. Christians did that. Personal property. You know, I've got, I've got a plot. You've got a plot. You can't come take my plot because that's my plot, Right? Personal property. That's a Sinai covenant, thoroughly Christian idea. Freedom of speech and religion. Dignity of labor, fair wages for fair work. Law and order. Modern courts and law enforcement. All these things flowed from Mount Sinai and through Christendom into what we now have in our modern society. These are Christian achievements. Through his people, unified, 
through brothers dwelling together in their togetherness, shaping each other, anointing each other, glorifying God, carrying out the ministry of Aaron in one another's life. Through this, it's like dew collecting atop a mountain and flowing down into a vast wasteland of a desert and watering the soil so that life might once again spring up. Through his people unified in his lordship and under his word, Jesus beats back the curse until one day, ultimately, he will come and make things all right and all true once again. Put very simply, where Christian brothers dwell together in one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one word and standard for righteousness, the flowers of Eden bloom. They bloom. And it may not be fast, and it's definitely not going to come easy, but given enough time, it blooms. This is unity, it's powerful. It's what the Lord wants from us, from his people. He wants us to be unified on the most important things under his lordship. And then he wants us to build the house upon the foundation. In whatever way he uniquely gifts and calls and, and, and tells us to specialize in, and we can say together, we, as we have that solid foundation underneath of us, as we gather together in our togetherness, we can then anoint one another and say, go build it, brother. Go do it. We're your biggest cheerleaders. That may not be how I would build, but you build it. You do it. You exercise the gifting. You do the teaching. You go do the preaching. You go to this ministry. You go minister at that nursing home. You learn to, ex- you learn to read Greek and exposit the New Testament. Great. That's great. Go teach those preschoolers. I don't want to do that. You do it. That's great. Go teach those junior high students, Miss Beverly. Amen. But then we all gather back in here. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one sovereign word over all, together in our togetherness. And it's beautiful. Psalm 133. Just hear it one more time. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's like the precious oil on the head running down the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. What a beautiful psalm. May the Lord bless your life with the kind of brotherly unity that in Christ sanctifies you and is blessing all those around you. Let's pray. Lord, we lift before you today our new members, the Masons, the Bombergers, Serena and Amy. We ask for their growth in Christ. We thank you for them. We lift Miss Judy Bestie before you, Lord, and Miss Mildred. We ask that you give them good days. Just good days. We pray for VBS volunteers. 
as we're all shuffling and trying to find our places and know where we're going to go and how we're going to serve. Be with those people that are over departments, coordinating with their volunteers, communicating with grace and love, and just getting excited. We pray for the children that are here and not here that are going to come and partake in Vacation Bible School. May your name be glorified in their midst. May our unity and our belief in you as our Lord and Savior be a pleasant aroma to them that they might desire the same things. Lord, I pray for our graduates that uh, may not know exactly what the future holds for them. Some of them have an idea, but still kind of scary, so we lift them up before you. Lord, we, we pray for those brothers who have been traveling for work, dangerous situations. I know of a few, Lord. It impacts us directly as a church when these brothers and their families are in need. And so we're thankful that they're back with us, thankful that they're safe. Lord, we pray for today the families and those who suffer because they know veterans who laid down their lives that tyranny and oppression might be stopped and that devilish governments might not continue to exist. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.